0: Hi, my friend, I'm Sabrina, your host of the Cultivating Curiosity podcast. You're listening to season three, which is focused on getting curious about spiritual evolution, because us humans are ready to go beyond, beyond what our five senses can comprehend, beyond the logic and reasoning of our minds. We just need some guidance, which is where this podcast comes in. Every episode is inspired by my very own deep questions related to spiritual awakening. And my hope is through my own curiosity, both you and I will uncover an aspect of ourselves we always knew was there. It just needed to be awakened. Are you ready? Oh my gosh, what an... (laughs) to be speaking with you once again thank you so much um you are the author of the new york times best-selling book proof of heaven which is celebrating its 10-year anniversary in october so congratulations can you believe it's already been 10 years
1: well it's uh it's amazing to me and uh, good news is there is going to be a 10th uh, anniversary <gasps> edition
0: oh my gosh of, proof of heaven yay a new
1: uh a prologue or a new forward to it i guess they're going to call it uh, in which I basically cover you know, what was the impact of the book, how it's, uh, uh, you know, it was kind of unprecedented in the NDE literature uh, uh, in terms of taking this, this huge kind of interest. Uh, New York Times bestseller list for almost two years, mm-hmm. number one on that list for 42 weeks, uh, and then all the influence it's had on the scientific community. And we, I mm-hmm. reference all of that uh, in that prologue or in that new forward, so wow. uh, it'll catch people up on the last decade, and there's been tremendous progress, and some of that progress is due to the book and to my experience in going public with it. So it's been very gratifying, and I look forward to that 10th anniversary edition that'll be coming out uh, sometime this fall.
0: Amazing. Well, I will be buying it and adding it to my collection. So. Good.
1: Great. <laughs> very I'm so excited. excited
0: for oh my gosh wonderful so um as i briefly had talked about i had the privilege of reading your book last fall for the very first time and i'm definitely what you would classify as a spiritual seeker i mean i always have been since i felt like i was little so i've always just been curious about everything spirituality. Yet one topic that I had never quite looked into yet was near-death experiences or NDEs. So I was talking with my therapist and she had actually recommended your book. And so I went on Amazon immediately after our session. I bought it and I ordered it. And your story truly changed how I view this life and the reason that we are here. And I've always been curious about those big life questions and the fact that you you really answered a lot of those for me, or at least gave me a new direction when it came to those big life questions. So I just want to thank you so much for that opportunity. Um, and your story just affirmed so much for me. You know, I've always felt in my bones there was this much, much larger invisible, invisible life force at play. And your story really affirmed that. So for listeners who have not yet read your book, I know that they will the second they listen to this podcast. But the sec for those who haven't yet, I'd like to start off by talking about your story, Eben, and I want to go back to 2008 when your life changed forever. So walk me through what you experienced early that morning on November 10th.
1: Okay. Well, I think it's important to point out. I had uh, spent the first 54 years of my life honing a very kind of scientific worldview, including mm-hmm. more than 15 years of teaching neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School. Thought I had some understanding of brain, mind, consciousness, but all that was about to shift dramatically with this experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, my, uh, you know, up until the day of coma, things seemed extremely normal. I mean, there was hardly a hint <laughs> that anything was amiss. But at 4.30 in the morning, November tenth, two 2008, I woke with severe back pain of, you know, thought, oh, my gosh, it was the worst back pain I'd ever had in my life. Uh, I got out of bed and, and kind of hobbled down the hallway, hopped into a, a bathtub and a nice hot bath, thinking mm-hmm. that would make it better. And in fact, it got worse and worse, even lying there in the bath where I almost couldn't even climb out of the bath myself. Mm. Uh, you know, baby steps back to the bed where I collapsed, kind of writhing in agony, uh, cold sweat, uh, and just uh, incredibly uh, debilitated by this thing. that was rapidly uh, progressing. Uh, I remember my uh, youngest son, Bond, who was 10 years old at the time, came in the room, you know, to, to see how dad was doing, and it's oh. like um, horrifying. Mm-hmm. And he, he started rubbing <laughs> my to make me feel better. He started rubbing right here. And as soon as he did, I felt like he had driven a white-hot spike through my head. And, of course, anybody in medicine who's heard about, you know, a patient with sudden onset severe back pain, severe headache would immediately think of meningitis. And yet the mm-hmm. doctor was already out. I was already being uh, uh, attacked by this uh, E. coli bacterial meningoencephalitis that very rapidly took over my entire neocortex, my brain stem, and started, you know, trying to kill me. And uh, that's why uh, the story garners so much attention among the uh, scientific community, and in fact has been bolstered strongly by an independent case report on my medical records that came out in September 2018 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, written by three doctors not involved in my care, but fascinated by my recovery. And in that case report, which you can access on my website evanalexander.com, uh, in the blog posting for September of 2018, which is when it was when it came out. But anyway, they just confirmed that uh, my brain was too damaged. Objective information from neurologic exams, scans, etc., showed there was no place in my brain for a hallucination or dream to occur. Hmm. Those places had already been destroyed. And. Uh, You know, the rest, uh, they went into in great detail in that article. Of course, I discussed a lot of those medical details in Proof of Heaven. But uh, truth of the matter is, from that moment on, I was gone from this world for the next seven days. And, of course, that's the story I tell in Proof of Heaven, was what I experienced. Uh, But the interesting thing is, it should not have been at all possible to have any experience. No hallucination, no dream, no nothing, given the damage to my brain. And that's what is so well confirmed in this medical case report. And of course, my healing uh, is the other point they make, that it's just extraordinary. I mean, no one in the medical literature has that severe a case of a gram-negative bacterial meningoencephalitis, where they're in deep coma for seven days with the kind of parameters of my illness, who then end up having a full recovery. I mean, that was the part that it occurred over about two months, this complete recovery. And it's important to point out to people that when I first woke up from my coma on day seven of coma, I didn't even recognize my loved ones at the bedside, my mother, my sisters, my sons. I had no idea who these beings were. Uh, part of my uh, journey that's a little atypical for near-death experiences is that I was amnesic. I had no memories of the life of Evan Alexander when I went through this experience. And that was, that. Uh, over the months and years since coma, became very clear why that was the setting. Uh, because that was the only way to really drive the deep truth into me about the reality of this journey. Uh, But Mm. it was extraordinary, as I tell in that book, Proof of Heaven, and uh, we can dive into any aspects of it that you are interested in.
0: Amazing. Well, no, thank you so much for prefacing that, because that is so crucial, because there are so many skeptics out there, rightfully so. I don't think anybody should just blindly follow something that's given to them. I love when people question and want to figure it out figure it out on their own, but there are a lot of skeptics for sure. And so the fact that you, for the first half of your life, was extremely scientifically based, probably not spiritual, it sounds like, at all in the slightest. Right. I'm sure you weren't meditating at that point in your life. Right. Um, so the fact that this happened to specifically you, it happens to many people, but to you, and for you now to just completely have a different worldview as a result of that experience. That makes it that much more powerful.
1: Well, it, it does. And I think it's important to point out to people that there, there was a lot of, of, of kind of back and forth on spirituality and science through my life. For example, I was obviously very influenced by my adoptive father. He was a globally renowned neurosurgeon. He was the reason I went into neurosurgery. Tremendous influence on my life. He was very respected scientifically, uh, a world leader in many uh, ways. And um, for him, there was never any conflict between his belief in a loving uh, uh, personal God, the power of prayer and healing, all of that. I mean, he put prayer to use in all of his daily life as a neurosurgeon. He knew physics and cosmology deeply. And yet for him, uh, it was all consistent with that loving personal God that he knew so well. Now, like so many who grew up in the 60s and 70s, I, I always knew that science is the pathway to truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I'm more of a scientist now than I've ever been in my life. But I also realize that materialist science, uh, you know, which is the conventional version of science that the New York Times and Scientific American and all these big publications promote to the public actually died uh, 80 or 90 years ago with the advent of quantum physics and our deep, deep mystery in in trying to comprehend what's going on with quantum physics, which is all about the brain-mind connection and consciousness, uh, is what has been so confusing to people. But that's why in our third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, that that was co-written with my life partner, Karen Newell, and that book is is the rest of my story, Beyond Proof of Heaven. Mm-hmm. There was a second book called The Map of Heaven, but that's not really my personal story so much as my sharing so many communications from other people about their experiences with me. And uh, I think that's one reason Proof of Heaven did so well, is so many people who have had these experiences went, oh my God, this is, reminds me of what I went through. And so that's what drew such a huge audience to it were all these people who had had similar experiences. And that's the point I tried to make in Map of Heaven. But the book Living in a Mindful Universe, that is truly the sequel to Proof of Heaven. And in fact, I would say the book Proof of Heaven is more of a question mark. Whereas the book Mm. Living in a Mindful Universe is much more of a proof of heaven. It goes into all the science and spirituality uh, over centuries of kind of human discovery uh, and really explains much more clearly How all of this starts to make sense when you realize that mind is primary in the universe and that we're sharing mind Mm. uh, in many ways and and that the physical universe emerges from mind, Mm -hmm. uh, not the other way around, which is where conventional science has it completely backwards. Uh, But this is where the world is going to shift radically. And it's been a tremendous gift to participate with other scientists around the world uh, on this a tremendous revolution that will absolutely change humanity for the better. Uh, in many ways, it'll accomplish what spiritual and religious systems have tried to do for thousands of years. But because it's based in in you know objective science, where we can come to some agreement about the data, uh, it will have much more power at ushering the world into a new new era.
0: Mm, I love that you use the word revolution. Uh, that just hit a chord with me, Evan, because I feel that we are at a turning point right now with human consciousness and evolution. And we've been on this journey for years. So I now want to talk about when you are entering this coma, as you had mentioned, you're in this coma for seven days. And to the people on the outside looking in, you're unconscious. But in reality, your consciousness is still there, but it's just not a part of this physical realm. So where were you?
1: Well, that is a very interesting, uh, uh, very interesting point. Uh, and the where was I has a lot to do with this deeper understanding of the mental realm, uh, the nature of consciousness, uh, and all of that. So um, uh, I, I think what this demands in terms of the, answering your question of where uh, demands a much more rigorous examination of where we are when we're sitting here in what we think is the physical realm. And uh, because it's uh, uh, just a much grander universe, it's one that must involve this realm of mind. And when you realize that the physical realm and our experience in these material bodies, with our brain serving as a reducing valve for primordial mind, for that unified mind and consciousness, that God force of mind that so many have uh, uh, encountered in, uh, you know, in these deep journeys that's when you start, you have to kind of question what this reality is of the physical universe, because in fact, it turns out that with phenomena in quantum physics, such as entanglement uh, and superposition states, things like that, which are fully, fully active at the level of our perceptions, you know, we we look around this world and we think there is the physical world out there. And yet quantum physics is what calls that very uh, kind of assumption into deep question. Uh, With entanglement, you're showing that our notions of space and time and causality are very much in error. Uh, You know, it completely defies Einstein's view of the speed of light being an ultimate speed limit for information in the universe, because, in fact, what quantum entanglement suggests is that we're instantaneously connected with the entire universe. And that part is really kind of difficult to get if you're trying (laughs) to pretend that it's all fundamentally based in a physical reality that extends in space and time. Because ultimately, space and time, uh, or our perceptions of them and of causality within a space-time continuum, um, are all subservient to this knowing of this one mind and this kind of uh, top-down causality, I'll call it. Ah, uh, the mistake that so many scientists make is they think that it's all bottom up. So you you, you know in reductive materialism, which is our conventional science, you um, you get deeply into uh, what is um, uh, really causing, uh, let me see how best how best to put this, um, the ca- causal relationships of what we witness in the world, Uh, are actually just our perceptions of them, and we're not perceiving an ultimate reality. That ultimate reality is not one that is slave to space, time, and causality in the typical sense that we believe. And so this is where the power of things like mind over matter come into the fore, because that's exactly what we're talking about. Uh, The bottom-up causality that conventional science assumes says that if you study the electrons, the protons, the quarks, the photons, you understand the rules that govern them, You put all that together and then you derive a system that emerges from the subatomic world up into our world uh, with all the determinism there. But then as people in quantum physics will tell you, there is no true determinism there. It's not like Newtonian determinism where you can assume that the whole future of the universe has been determined from the moment of the Big Bang on because of this notion of top-down causality of consciousness, of free will. And when you realize that there is a tremendous amount of free will in what we see as human history, it's not just the random actions of all these subatomic particles following the laws of physics, chemistry, biology. There's something much richer going on that is what gives us the world we see emerging and that richness is from that mental layer that top-down causal layer where in fact what we're doing and and we explain this in living in a mindful universe in our third book is coming to see that god consciousness that so many have encountered in deep spiritual experiences ndes etc is really a consciousness that's the very source of our conscious awareness Uh, and and then the next step of realization is that that little voice in your head? Uh, you know, so many people identify with a voice in their head, and they think that's who I am. Uh, and yet, I love the way Michael Singer puts it in his book, *The Untethered Soul*. Uh, he says that the, uh, you know, the voice uh, that your that voice in your head is your annoying roommate, mm-hmm. and that's extremely <laughs> important concept because that is so true. And I've discovered that and rediscovered it multiple, multiple times in deep meditation where I can kind of take this top-down view and see Evan Alexander's linguistic brain, ego mind, all those things as this tiny little component of who I truly am, and I can even put that into time out to allow my higher soul, the grander aspect of me that intersects with the rest of the universe and with that loving God force, uh, and use that to help bring manifestation of a more ideal world. In fact, that's uh, what we argue in Living in Mindful Universe is that idealism uh is the appropriate uh, term for how this world works and what that really means is our mental function uh, influences the universe in very powerful ways uh, to uncover an unfolding reality. And the sooner we realize that that's not determined by our little ego mind and our little petty self-interest, but by our higher aspect of soul and self that's interactive with others and that is bound to them through the force of love, kindness, compassion, mercy and forgiveness, we start to see a a new pathway forward in understanding how we can see ourselves in this world and also make choices about how to best uh, kind of act in this world, the best choices for the higher good of all involved.
0: Mm, that's so. There's so much to unpack there, and I want to quickly before talking about what you were experiencing during the coma, um, being in the the core as you call it, and the village and all that. I want to hear that as well. But before we go in there into that, how? Do we blind? Because I am a big follower of Eckhart Tolle. I'm sure you have studied his work Absolutely. as well. And Eckhart he...
1: definitely has his finger on the pulse
0: of the earth. <laughs> he is very much not of this universe. He's a gift to us. He's amazing. He and his work, all spiritual teachers have impacted my life, but his work specifically, in terms of calming the monkey brain and the anxiety that I deal with on occasion, just Focusing on what is physically here has helped me so tremendously to be what he calls gently alert in this present moment, in this physical reality. But sometimes what I get caught up in is, is this physical reality really reality you know what I mean like is this and I start like questioning and getting into those big life questions I had talked about earlier and so how do you balance the works of like Eckhart Tolle where his teaching is so profound but it's also so simplistic of just coming back to what is physically here but then also balancing that knowledge and wisdom of there is so much more than what is physically here like how do you balance those two Well, it's actually
1: very simple, and it it starts with the uh, assumption that um, basically the the unknown is infinite. And, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. modern scientists get into deep trouble by pretending they're very, very, very close to some theory of everything. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's incredibly damaging. Uh, But the reality here is simply accepting that there's a lot about the universe we don't know. And then uh, what we do is we move forward into examining human experiences Uh, and not just everyday experiences, although those are very important uh, in in fully interpreting all this, but also these bigger kind of exotic experiences, near-death experiences, uh, shared death experiences, uh, which are just like near-death, but they happen in people who are perfectly healthy, like a loved one who might be a thousand miles away when their mother is dying, uh, and yet wham, her soul comes right through, takes their soul along, even to the point of watching her life review. Wow. Before the bystander soul comes back to this world. Uh, And I've met many people in my uh, telling of my story who had had shared death, not just near-death experiences. And they're really mind-blowing. And of course, they completely defy any uh, Pseudo explanations from the materialist camp, which you know is trying to pretend that oxygen tension problems or build up of CO2 in somebody who's trying to die give you these hallucinations. Well, in shared death, you don't have any of those physiologic things going on. So uh, there, you just have to accept that there is this profound spiritual reality. Can it can, can inject itself? into our awareness. And of course, we're all used to entering a spiritual realm and dreams at night. Uh, and, and then also it's, it's important to point out that um, psychedelic substances, which I do not recommend for this kind of thing, but I'm very happy that we're now doing research because the psychedelic substances show us how the brain is not creating consciousness at all. Uh, in fact, there are many papers in the last uh, eight years uh, with functional MRI, magnetoencephalography, studies like that, that really get down to the function of neurons and neural networks in the brain. And what they show you is under the influence of psilocybin, LSD, dimethyltryptamine, et cetera, all those uh, serotonin 2A type uh, psychedelic uh, substances, the brain goes dark it gets out of the way. The brain is not causing those extraordinary phenomenal experiences. You have to dig deeper. So we need need this bigger universe where we visualize the conscious realm as kind of uh, expanding out and containing uh, this physical universe within it. Uh, And that bigger uh, kind of theater of operations allows us to come into a much more facile understanding of how this can really work. Uh, Again, in Living in a Mindful Universe, we go into all this in great detail and talk about filter theory, where the the brain is that filter of primordial mind, primordial consciousness. Uh, And then I think the other important thing to say in this discussion is that uh, the way I view it, with this much bigger view, which also includes an acknowledgement of the scientific evidence for reincarnation, You know this is not a question of what if you want to believe in reincarnation or not believe in it because the scientific evidence is overwhelming that it's absolutely real no question just go to uvadops.org university of virginia division of perceptual studies website and you'll find a group of scientists who have studied past life memories in children going all the way back to the 1960s and concluded uh with 1700 solved cases out of 2500 total cases they investigate or 2700 now i think. Uh, that, you know, reincarnation is it. That's the explanation. These souls, our souls come back. But interesting is the memories get covered over. There's what I call programmed forgetting, where the uh, memories of the past life and between lives get covered over. So if you ask a young child, you know, between ages two and five or six, uh, where they were before they were here, uh, sometimes you get some fascinating answers <laughs> uh, at what what Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker, the two uh, doctors who have run that program at UVA discovered, is that you have to inquire about those memories before age five or six, because after that, they get lost. And there is another phenomenon, widely acknowledged, called the amnesia of childhood. And most people will admit to this, and that is that before age uh, six or seven, of when your language centers are more developed, uh, it's very hard to recover memories of what happened in those first five or six years. And that's because they do get covered over. As our uh, memory systems convert more to a linguistically based kind of a filing system, uh, we lose track of those memories. But that doesn't mean they didn't occur and that you can't uncover them at that early age and that they're not important uh, and that they didn't really happen. That's the important thing to state. Uh, And so this much bigger world is what I'm talking about, Uh, and it's a world that acknowledges our grander existence, this fact that our souls come back again and again in this process, uh, that there is this program forgetting. But remember that I think most importantly in in my piece of this discussion right now is to acknowledge that what we do here and now in this world with that forgetting, so we don't remember between lives, we buy into this life with that adult self that comes on at age seven. Uh, that's all part of buying into the uh, game for the for the soul journey, because this is where we get the important work done. I would look at the time between lives, it's kind of like breathing, and I would see this is the big inhale, and then between lives is the big exhale. And it's mm. just this rhythmic breathing of our reincarnations. that's kind of how I saw reincarnations in, in my journey, because of the amnesia, I could not have an Eben Alexander life review, but I did see life reviews in a fantastic fashion in that journey, and I discuss, you know, uh, how it started in that earthworm's eye view, it went into the Gateway Valley, much more kind of ultra-real, much more real than this world, and then ascending through portals up into the core realm, uh, which was a oneness with the divine, this uh, the pure, mm-hmm. Uh, oneness with the universe in so many beautiful ways where I was taught and shown so many things and I'm still busy unpacking through meditation but one of the the visions in there was what I call Indra's Net and that was this incredible vision of our interwoven lives and I saw that exact rhythmicity just like breathing in and out inhale exhale incarnation between lives incarnation I saw that writ large in this beautiful Indra's Net vision in the core uh, where I saw all of our individual soul lines, I saw life reviews, I saw the beautiful kind of power of karma to nudge us towards that oneness of love and oneness with the divine. And that bigger vision is one that helps us to really understand all this and how it can work. Only by taking this bigger vision, and not the ants eye view, but really you know, kind of the God's eye view, or the, the higher soul eye view, uh, that's how we can start to make more sense of it.
0: Wow, that's powerful. So I want to talk, I have so many questions about you in the core. And for people who haven't read the book yet, the core that you call it is like this dark, magical place where essentially you communicated with God, the universe, whoever. Once You speak to it as OM, OM in your book. So whoever, whatever word people want to call it, let's just say God for the simplicity of this conversation. And what fascinates me about that part of your story is that you say that you communicated without words, but instead through feeling that went through you like the wind. And in your book, you say, quote, each time I silently posed a question, the answer came instantly in an explosion of light, color, love, and beauty that blew through me like a crashing wave. As I received these answers, I was able to instantly and effortlessly understand concepts that would have taken me years to fully grasp in my early life, in my earthly life. So talk to me more about this experience of effortlessly downloading information. Because on this earthly life right now where we have the sluggish thoughts and the language, that seems foreign. It seems amazing, but it seems so foreign to me.
1: Well, you know, I make many references in the book Proof of Heaven to kind of time dilation and how uh, like I opened the book with that uh, uh, kind of skydiving episode for my college years when I was jumping out of airplanes uh, and how I almost had a midair collision and how in that moment of going past uh, the other jumper who dumped his parachute right in my face, um, I reacted Far more quickly, you know, it was reactions that had nothing to do, seemingly, with my conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. I simply did all the necessary steps, and with a fraction of a second, I had maneuvered and saved my life and saved his life too. Um, and and so that I put that early in the book is kind of this mystery of our uh, perception of time and self and of our free will and its abilities and its limitations, uh, because I think that's what where we can open this. Whole discussion much more richly into our possibilities. Um, but it, it really kind of points out, and I would say my meditative experience, I use sacred acoustics to meditate, of uh, you know, and, and that's a form of differential frequency brainwave entrainment. Go to sacredacoustics.com if you have questions. Uh, but I've been using that for more than 10 years now. Uh, and use it routinely to escape my little Eben Alexander mind, this linguistic brain that's stuck here in this plotty little, you know, four dimensional space time and kind of reunite across the veil with my higher soul. And that's where I have gained a lot of meditative experience to help uh, kind of firm up and validate so much of what I first encountered in my NDE. But the first step is realizing we are so used to thinking that we use our little linguistic brain, we follow the breadcrumbs of knowledge, rational thought, logical thinking, all those things, and think that's the best way to get us to an answer. Well, in fact, no, that's not true. There are many examples uh in our in our world of of thought leaders of of scientists, philosophers, artists, musicians who have developed ways of bypassing that simple little plotting rational voice in the head uh, to get to deep creative insights. In fact, some of the greatest creative insights in science have come from these techniques. Uh, for example, Albert Einstein, he would float around in a little sailboat uh, of, you know, <laughs> in Long Island. And he'd be looking up at the sky and he'd be doing this for hours on end, kind of daydreaming. And that's where a lot of his brilliant ideas that would change the world would come from. It wasn't just from sitting at his desk plotting over equations, but he really needed that insight that came from this kind of hypnagogic space of daydreaming, napping, looking at the sky. Likewise, uh, Thomas Alva Edison, one of the greatest inventors, in uh american history uh he used to stay awake for days and nights at a time uh, when he was inventing and he needed new ideas he would sit there in a very sleepy state with some weights in his hand as those weights would drop Uh, Two or three times it would wake him up, and those micro-naps, that hypnagogic between asleep and awake, that would open his space of creativity and allow him to, aha, see the the way forward in his uh, solutions. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, the the renowned uh, Scottish uh, poet, novelist, musician, uh, had a similar technique, where he would use this hypnagogic uh, thing, just like uh, Edison did of uh, Salvador Dali, similar technique, etc. So in many fields of creativity, you find that people develop these ways of accessing that primordial mind, of not relying on the breadcrumbs that go through linguistic brain, rational, logical thought, but actually seek knowledge of the universe in a grander fashion. And I to anybody who's in creative arts and science, philosophy, writing, uh, any field, really where you want to be creative and need a very open mind, I would say meditate, meditate, meditate. Mm-hmm. Uh, spend a lot of time doing that. And for me, it's been a tremendous boon, but it also has helped me to uh, kind of uh, foster and develop and cultivate much of what I first encountered in my NDE, uh, and Those are the kind of things that Karen and I love to share in our workshops because I'm fully convinced that people don't have to have an NDE to come to the kind of knowledge I have about this grander universe. You can do it through meditation, and that's uh, part of the program that we recommend so strongly in that book, Living in a Mindful Universe.
0: Mm, I love that. It's like building your physical muscle, right? It's like just a practice that you have to build and strengthen every single day. And I totally believe in that. Like we're all connected and meditation is just a way of uncovering what's already there and what's always been there.
1: Well, I can tell you, uh, uh, Karen, uh, months ago came up with that idea of the spiritual muscle. And I (laughs) I love it because that's exactly what we're talking about here. Once you realize that the universe is primarily mental and then ultimately spiritual, uh, spiritual just implying mental but with a connectedness with others and with uh, that God force at large. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you start to realize the power we have as individuals to really help steer this world into a positive direction.
0: Mm, absolutely. So one of the most important lessons that was drilled into you during your coma when you were in this other invisible realm, but here physically you know you are unconscious on the hospital bed. but. One of those important lessons that you first heard of from that mysterious, beautiful woman woman that was flying with you throughout the villages on the butterfly wing, um, she had mentioned, but once again, not through words, but through a feeling that was just instantaneous right. within you. She had said, you are loved and cherished, you have nothing to fear, and you can do nothing wrong. So essentially, that all boils down to love, which you mentioned in the book. That was like the one message that was just such a prominent truth in your experience was everything is wrapped in love that is the essence of all realities is love and
1: absolutely go ahead and I I would simply say that of course I think the vast majority of near-death experiencers would would join me in that sentiment saying that the binding force of love is ultimately the most important force in the universe and that's what really guides all of our uh kind of ongoing uh evolution as uh, sentient beings um but it's uh it's just it was a beautiful message and as you pointed out um, just to kind of catch people up on this who haven 't read proof of heaven, my journey started in an er- ugly earthworm's eye view, a very primitive porous kind of subterranean existence. But I was rescued from that by this slowly spinning white light that opened up and took me like a, a portal like a wormhole up into this brilliant ultra real gateway valley, and the gateway valley was where so many uh, things happened, and that 's where this encounter that you 're mentioning with that beautiful uh uh, spiritual guide mm-hmm. on, on the butterfly wing with me. Uh, she was essential to my understanding of this, as those who've read the book will realize, um, uh, tremendously. But her message was very simple, and I think the ultimate message I was to bring back, because it's there for all of us. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are deeply cared for. And there is that other piece of it where I said you can do no wrong, And that, unfortunately, I wish I'd expanded on that in the book Proof of Heaven, because some people completely misunderstand that. They don't realize that by the time I was in that realm with that beautiful woman, uh, with that message that was delivered telepathically, as you said, emotionally, she never had to say a word. And in fact, this entire journey never involved words and language. It was always pure conceptual flow. I only applied words and language as I wrote it all up weeks later. That's a very important thing to understand. Uh, But in the journey, her message to me was very clear and simple, emotionally driven, uh, telepathically, a deep richness to it. In fact, I came to know her so well in this process because of that mind meld. That when i came back to this world and then started reading the nde literature which i'd never paid attention to before which was only after i'd written down the first twenty thousand words to describe my own journey because my son of uh, majoring in neuroscience in college had urged me to write it all down before i read anybody else's report mm-hmm. very important uh, mm-hmm. so my uh, database of my journey was never tainted by anyone else's nde because i'd never studied them But once I did study them uh, beginning about six weeks post coma after I'd written down my experience, I realized this incredible commonality of these stories and how much overlap there was across cultures, millennia belief systems, no matter what the medical situation, putting somebody near death, whatever, there's tremendous commonality when you study these stories uh, that is really surprising. And that's what kind of drew my attention. Uh, But one of the most important things was I came to realize in that study, uh, if I had scripted this whole journey, my father would have been there front and center, my adoptive father, the neurosurgeon, who had passed over four years before my coma, and yet he was nowhere to be found. And I explain all that much more fully in the book, Living in a Mindful Universe, where I cover my encounter with my father's soul in deep meditation about two and a half years post-coma when I was trying to make sense of all this. And he explained very clearly to me that he could not be apparent to me, as he put it, with his little you know uh, sense of humor. Uh, because if he had been, I would have been more tempted in spite of the fact that I had a one in you know 10 million diagnosis, E. coli meningoencephalitis in an adult, and a one in a billion recovery, uh, as it is amplified in that case report on my medical records. Uh, you know this was not uh, the kind of case where you expect recovery. Uh, but in spite of those features, if my father had been the guardian angel, I I would have questioned it. I would have backed off to my conventional scientific self, saying, "Wait a minute. You see who you want to see on the way out." We got to question that more deeply. But by being someone I did not know, and yet someone who was very deeply important to me in my life, that beautiful guardian angel on the butterfly wing, who I only discovered the identity of four months post-coma, that was the key to the kingdom. That is what opened my eyes. It all seemed way too real to be real because it really happened. It just did not happen in this material realm, but it happened in a more fundamental, the mental spiritual realm, which most ears describe as much more real than this world. And that Mm -hmm. should be no surprise when you realize that in this world, we're sitting there witnessing a consciousness where everything we hear is filtered through the ears, everything we see filtered through the eyes with very restricted range. Uh, and then, you know, you have memory and you have executive function, all these other things that get coordinated uh, in our mindset. Uh, but uh, in that realm, you're drinking from the fire hose of consciousness full bore, not this tiny little trickle that we're used to in these bodies, in these brains, uh, that tiny little trickle of, the, of a here and now that are not true in reality, but they're part of our putting it all together to make sense of our journey through this cosmos. Um but that is, and also the sense of self, because the, in the life review, which I saw not as an Evan Alexander life review, but as this big generic form, as I said earlier, in that Indra's Net version, um, uh, in that, uh, uh, that vision, what I saw was that much grander possibility Uh, for our souls, uh, you know, kind of learning from uh, the life review. And when you study life reviews and NDEs, you find that, interestingly enough, they are really from the emotional perspective of those around us who are affected by our thoughts and actions, more so than our own little personal me-self experience. And the importance of that is that the life review is showing us that we're all truly in this together. To hurt another is to hurt oneself. We truly uh, are, you know, sharing one mind, uh, and mm-hmm. that uh, is a very important concept. Uh, I think to amplify on that, I would simply add uh, for, your, uh, uh, for your audience that there was a tremendous contest uh, in the U.S. La- or globally last year uh, to answer the question, uh, what is the best scientific evidence for survival of consciousness beyond permanent bodily death? This, con- uh, this essay was entered by over a thousand people, uh, 200 uh, of whom could satisfy the requirement of proving they'd studied afterlife uh, uh, experiences scientifically for over five years. Uh, and of that group, you then had 204 papers. Uh, and the Bigelow Institute was going to give out three awards initially, but they were so impressed with the quality of the papers that they gave out 29 awards. Wow. And so those papers are available for free to all of your audience right now, to the reading public, bigelowinstitute.org. Go start reading those essays. The first one by Dr. Jeffrey Mishlov is a mind bender and an absolute game changer. All the rest of them contribute tremendously too, all coming from many different directions. In fact, uh, one of them I remember even said this whole question of the afterlife was settled uh, in the late ni- uh, 19th century, beyond a reasonable doubt. And yet, here we need more data. So quantum physics, so philosophy of mind, a modern NDEs, shared death experiences, psychedelics, all the investigations. Uh, a lot of this is material we cover in Living in a Mindful Universe, but these Bigelow Institute essays are all really pointing to the reality of the afterlife. And the most straightforward way to interpret that, it, it, if you read some of those uh, top papers, like Pim van Lommel, the number two position. Uh, he's a Dutch cardiologist, wrote a beautiful scientific paper proving the reality of the afterlife. And towards the end of his paper, he suggests we're all sharing the one mind. Uh, and he says that is a very clear, and as I said, that is the point of our book, Living in a Mind for Universe, is this objective idealism, or analytic idealism, as it's often called. But that is where we can really come to a deeper understanding of how this universe works, uh, the kind of power we have over it, the influence we have. And, uh, you know, it has everything to do with healing, explaining things like placebo effect, spontaneous remission, and especially these cases of miraculous healing and near death experiences, like my case, like Anita Morjani, who cured mm-hmm. her advanced lymphoma uh, through a near death experience, the spiritual encounter. Dr. Mary C. Neal. Uh, who had a profound NDE during a kayaking accident in Chile back in the late 1990s, more than 30-minute warm water drowning uh, Mm. in her book, "Heaven uh, To Heaven and Back. Uh, So these NDEs with extraordinary healing are right at the tip of the spear of telling us the power we have of mind over matter to lead to healing, to wholeness, to coming into the souls we came here to be. And that's why it's so important to take this much, much bigger view and realize the power we can have through objective idealism, this notion of the one mind, uh, and putting it all together in a scientific sense greatly explains a lot of the spiritual features of human existence.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I will be linking the Bigelow Papers in the show notes because that sounds so fascinating. Oh. Um, and I want to, before we move on, just kind of back up to talking about the love message because I feel like that's so important. I just want to make sure that we, we tap into that. So one of the sayings that I had mentioned was you can do nothing wrong. And essentially that's wrapping into one word of love. Um and I also want to talk about the fear. There is nothing to fear. Um so starting with the fear. You know right now there's a lot of fear in the world especially over the last few years and it seems to just have been compounding and compounding lately. And when I first read that sentence in your book I thought to myself yeah, I wish I had nothing to fear. You know, <laughs> that sounds really nice. Um, so, Evan, could you please provide a little more clarity around the lesson that was drilled into you through a feeling, not so much words, but through a feeling of you have nothing to fear? What What does that mean? Because I feel like a lot of us, when we read that, we get trapped in our dualistic, logical minds with that one.
1: Well, I can tell you what it ultimately hinges on Uh, is one's ability to feel connected with the universe at large and to realize that the universe has purpose. Uh, In fact, Karen and I often talk about the fact that spirituality, in our definition, really has those two very simple definitions. Uh, You know, that you're connected with one mind, that we're all really in this together— that we share that sentience with all the fellow beings of not only Earth, but, but beyond. Uh, but also that sense that love and kindness are at the core. And, and and the proof of that love and kindness for me is very dramatically empowered by the group experience of people who have had NDEs, who have been over there and come back for all the different ways that we get there. Uh, you come to realize that we all find that beautiful, loving power of connection and love, uh, that it brings tremendous healing to us. And there are what are called negative or hellish NDEs. They make up probably around three to five percent of the overall literature, although you could certainly argue that they're even more underreported than positive NDEs. People, you know, are not necessarily gonna come out and just talk about these things mm-hmm. because they think it was crazy. It was way too real, it's totally unexpected, it's shocking. Uh, and they're worried, uh, you know, people will think they're, they're nuts. And so people often don't share them. That's one of the reasons why I wrote the book Proof of Heaven was to help people realize, no, this is part of reality. You can share these broadly and, um, you know, all of that. But the deep truth is even those three to five percent of negative NDEs, hellish NDEs, whatever you want to call them, end up having the same effect. They, they bring you closer to a sense of the loving power of this universe and that there is a God force. And people do not describe, in the when you look at the huge literature of Indies, they're not describing some battle between good and evil at these deep spiritual levels. No, it is simply the love of that God force. In fact, you would never even think that at that deepest level of the cosmos, uh, that there was any kind of evil. And I discussed that in Proof of Heaven, where I said that evil is present in trace amounts. And what the, the apparent evil does is it engenders that ability to illuminate our free will and to give us the choices in our action. And that's where in the book, where I said you can do no wrong, I regret that I didn't explain at that point that, of course, our choices matter. Uh, and that, of course, this universe is nudging us towards love and compassion, kindness, and caring for each other. But we have the free will to do otherwise. If we do otherwise, mistreat others, be selfish, greedy. Uh, what that does is it ends up giving us a life review that nobody would want to have. Uh, because um, in the life review, as I said earlier, it's not from your own perspective. It's from the perspective of that one mind, kind of as an instructive uh, mind to teach and learn through these uh, kind of relationships and interactions. But what we find is that the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated, in many ways is written into the fabric of the universe through these life reviews, where you realize it's all about the good that we've done, and that's how we recover this most complete sense of self, is by you know throw that ego self in the toilet. Uh, the little ego, the little selfish, greedy piece of you. It, it serves a purpose in a Darwinian predator-prey dance, but that's not what we're we're doing. We've evolved far beyond that uh, necessity of a, an ego to protect uh, a little being uh, in a biological system, but to this much grander notion of self and interconnectedness. So this is a maturation of our view of the world uh, and of the way we can see it. But But when you listen to these stories, and I include in that the stories, for example, out of Attica prison of, uh, if you go to Nancy Evans Bush, she has a great website on negative NDEs. Uh, And on that website, she talks about uh, in one particular blog posting of, of, you know, prisoners uh, in a prison hosting murderers, rapists, uh, et cetera. uh, And they're serving as uh, hospice workers for their fellow prisoners who are dying. Uh, And just as you find Mm -hmm. in hospice work around the world, like Christopher Kerr's recent book, uh, Death is But a Dream, which I highly recommend, all about hospice, uh, where it overlaps totally with near-death experiences in this uh, theme of love, you find the very same thing even in the negative ones it's always about love recovering love a sense of love realizing why someone might have behaved badly treated others poorly in their life but it always hinges back on events in their own life that led them through this tough soul journey um and the the answer is always going to involve that love compassion kindness and taking care of each other uh and not this kind of egotistical you know Of selfish greed, my way or the highway, you know, that kind of stuff will lead you to a horrible life review. In fact, I would say that our concepts of hell, uh, going back thousands of years of that kind of very negative spiritual uh, realm have come from negative life reviews. They've come from people who have led those selfish, greedy lives where they might have put great pain and suffering onto other people. And then they have to feel that in the life review. And that is not fun. And that's why we're all eternally being nudged towards this uh, goodness, compa- uh, compassion, mercy, uh, and when necessary, forgiveness. And of course, never forget gratitude. Gratitude mm. and forgiveness, I think, are our two greatest tools. But kind of uh, in a nutshell, that's, that's what gives me this tremendous knowing of the, the fundamental nature of love and kindness and compassion at the core of the universe uh, as our deep spiritual truth and kind of our North Star.
0: Amazing. So when you were in this beautiful realm, you know, everything is coming to you effortlessly. You are in like these vivid colors flying on a butterfly wing. Like what could go wrong? Um, What do you think now? Like having been out of your coma for over 10 years now, having been studying this work for over 10 years, what do you think is the purpose of leaving those higher aspects of ourselves for a few years to condense our infinite energy into these human bodies to live on a planet with physical matter, with duality, with free will, with evil, with good? It seems so much easier from where you were. You know, what, it, what do you think is the reason for all of this?
1: Well, I, I would say that that God force that's the very source of our conscious awareness that God Force is very interested in kind of a process of self-discovery, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, In other words, it's not just all perfection in that one mind, but it's a process of, you know, kind of uh, watching the evolution, seeing how this whole interaction of sentient beings uh, evolves over time. Uh, And that's why I would say that... uh, I think human destiny in many ways can best be uh, interpreted when we take this deep look at the nature of reality and realize that our souls get all the work done here, temporarily blinded because of that program forgetting. We don't live our adult lives so normally remembering that, but that's where NDEs and similar transformative experiences, after-death communications uh, being one of the most common, where people have some sense of a connection with their loved one after the loved one has left the physical body. And those are out there, probably 70 to 80 percent of Americans uh, or of people in the world at large uh, have experienced such connections with loved ones who have departed the physical world. They often come not just as some kind of wishful thinking, vague interpretation, but as a very powerful example in the moment. Uh, In fact, I give an example in in uh, the book Living in a Mindful Universe of someone I met at one of the near-death meetings. Uh, And this uh, person, who had never really shared her story much before, told me about the first time that she encountered the soul of her dad after he had passed from the physical world. I think it was, uh, as I recall, it was a few years after he'd passed. Uh, But she's just driving down a rain-soaked highway and all of a sudden, he pops into her mind and says, you should move over into the left lane there because that, that truck that you're about to pass is gonna blow a tire. Oh. She pulls over in the lane. as Soon as she passes, boom, the tire explodes. She keeps driving, no problem, and going, oh my God. <laughs> and, and so in the moment, and she was convinced it was her father. Who, who had died, uh, but his soul was right there in that moment to protect her from what could have potentially been a very dangerous situation for her. But I've heard thousands of stories like that. So, and and of course, there are the stories of people who, for example, have a dream where they see their loved one. Uh, their loved one returns to them and says, you need to go to the doctor. Uh, you have a mass in your breast or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then they go to the doctor and they get an early diagnosis of breast cancer, what have you. Uh, and those stories are out there literally by the thousands of people who have had these kind of premonitory dreams that led them to an early medical diagnosis that basically saved their life. So these can be very practical communications when we talk about after-death communications. But these are all forms of just kind of acknowledging this bigger universe where our consciousness has tremendous power, uh, access to information, and also influence on the evolving world. That's where power of prayer, uh, distance healing, all those things come in handy.
0: Mm, absolutely. And as we wrap up our our conversation today, this has gone way too quickly, and I only have a couple more questions. But um, like we had mentioned, it's been 10 years. And when you were writing your book, you mentioned pretty frequently, you know, these concepts, it's so hard to put into words. And you kept mentioning like these were just effortless concepts that you knew when you came back to Earth were going to take years to unpack. And it has been years since you wrote your book. And I know that you've re- written two others after the fact, but it's been 10 years since you wrote Proof of Heaven. So, my question is is there any concepts or lessons that you didn't get a chance to write in proof of heaven simply because you couldn't remember at the time or you couldn't find words to describe to s- describe those experiences any lessons or maybe even rewordings that you something that you wrote in proof of heaven that looking back now wasn't fully accurate
1: well there's a tremendous amount of every bit of that i mean mm-hmm. a 180 degree uh, revolutionary flip in our understanding Now I want to point out, this is not just Eben Alexander kind of thinking about his little experience and talking about it. I I work with hundreds of scientists around the world who are interested in consciousness. Uh, Two big groups that you can uh, investigate online that I work with, one is Galileo Commission. Go to GalileoCommission.org and you'll learn a tremendous amount more about the scientific revolution that I am part of. Likewise the Scientific and Medical Network. Uh, which I think is scientificandmedical.org, something like that. But just if you Google Scientific and Medical Network, you'll find it. Uh, I work with that group, David Lorimer out of uh, France. Uh, he's English originally. Um, and, and the the scientists uh, at UVA, the scientists at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Uh, I mean, all of this is covered in large measure in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. But it's really those scientific ef- uh, efforts. And I think... For anyone who goes to read those uh, Bigelow Institute essays, you'll start to realize just how much power uh, all this has. And for example, I know we were at a, uh, Karen and I were at a scientific meeting in Belgium in 2018, uh, and one of the neuroscientists from uh, Stephen Lory's group in Belgium, a neuroscientific group, uh, she gave a a paper where she put up that uh, the Uh, she had done an analysis of a number of scientific papers worldwide uh, addressing near-death experiences and she looked over the period from 1980 to the current era and found that in the year 2012 there was this inflection point where the frequency of those papers leading up to 2012 was a certain level and then it went up fourfold uh, after 2012. (laughs) Now, Proof of Heaven came out 2012 and she actually attributed or, or mention this uh, this tremendous growth as being the result of, of proof of heaven. And I don't know if that's true or not. I know a lot of scientists have taken tremendous interest in my story because of all the power that it has, uh, completely refuting uh, the simplistic uh, rebuttals from materialist scientists trying to explain it away. Um, and uh, I don't know if I was just fortunate to uh, published the book at that time or if I'm really uh, part of that historical shift but the reality is there that uh, the scientific community has taken all this far more seriously uh, over the last decade and we will never go back to the blind stupid simplicity of reductive materialism and Newtonian determinism in conventional science because those eras should have died 80 years ago uh, <laughs> with quantum physics and with as we further come into a deeper understanding of quantum physics and integration Uh, with a kind of neuroscience, philosophy of mind, and a deeper understanding of reality, uh, the world is headed in a direction of objective idealism. Uh, And that really is a notion of that one mind. Uh, in fact, in Pim van Lommel's second place paper in that Baylow Institute essay, at the end of the paper, he's talking deeply about the scientific evidence for the one mind that we share. Uh, he lists four sources there that to him were most important. One is the book One Mind by Dr. Larry Dossey, which I highly recommend. Uh, another was, is a modern, more modern book from Stephen uh, uh, Taylor called uh, Spiritual Science. Recommended. The third was a paper by Bernardo Kastrup. That paper is called The Universe in Consciousness. Uh, it came out, I think, Journal of Consciousness Studies 2018. And then the fourth resource was our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. And I'm very gratified that Pim Van Lommel saw that as a beautiful scientific source for this one-mind hypothesis. And what I would add is Pim Van Lommel's book, Consciousness Beyond Life is one of the best, most comprehensive books I've ever read about near-death experiences, consciousness, the brain-mind connection, and the modern science of understanding this. So there are the resources, and if you go to EbenAlexander.com, there's a reading list that has a tremendous range of additional resources that you might look at. I can also recommend the blog page on EvanAlexander.com. Not only that, but there's also an FAQ page that answers a lot of the questions, especially for media. Uh, You know, there was one negative article out attacking me uh, back in 2013, and that has been heavily rebutted uh, long (laughs) ago. But uh, a lot of the scientific evidence supporting my story is available, uh, you know, in those blog postings and in the FAQ, et cetera. Uh, And for anyone interested in the meditation, just go to sacredacoustics.com. Differential frequency brainwave entrainment is an incredibly powerful way of allowing you to traverse the veil by kind of interfering with the the kind of brainstem neocortical connection down at the lower brainstem level. Uh, We explain all that in Living in a Mindful Universe if you want to know more. But this is all about a journey of self-exploration, which we highly recommend people to partake in.
0: Mm -hmm. oh my gosh so much reading material i i cannot wait to go back and listen to this and i'll have a notepad and pen in hand writing it all down so that's so exciting and i meditate every day so i am gonna go to the sacred acoustics website and use that for my meditation today um evan this has been truly so powerful thank you so so much for your time this morning it your story and the knowledge and the wisdom that you share it is profound and it is life-changing for so many people around the world so thank you so much for sharing your gift with me
1: well, sabrina thanks for having me on it's been great talking with you i hope we can do it again someday
0: me too oh,
1: my, my best wishes and love to you and your audience
0: thank you so much and i will be chatting with karen like i said in september so i'm really excited to get to know her meet her and just hear her wisdom too
1: well, you'll you'll find out she's the brains of this operation. <laughs> and of course, we realize what I really mean there is she's the deep spirit of this operation.
0: So How did you guys meet?
1: Uh, we met, uh, we were actually both very interested in differential frequency sound for deep meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in November 2011, we met at a workshop, and the workshop was for people who wanted to teach other people these techniques. So, so a very advanced workshop. And uh, as soon as I met her, I just realized we shared a life mission. Mm. Uh, And I told her that, and she didn't believe me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She's like, okay, yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs)
1: But, you know, I don't, uh, certainly back at that time, I didn't consider myself terribly intuitive, but I definitely was ahead of her on intuiting uh, our deep and profound connection. And, of course, she has just lived up to it tremendously. Uh, And I just love the work we do together. It's just, uh, to me, it's a tremendous gift in my life.
0: Oh, I love that. Well, you two definitely lead a beautiful life together. So and I just thank you both for the work that you do. And I cannot wait to dive into it. And please just keep me posted on what's going on and um, enjoy your garden. That is something that my fiance and I would love to have one day. We currently live in a little apartment. So when we buy a house, garden is in our future for sure. <laughs>
1: Well, good. Well, good luck with that, and Thank enjoy you. it because it's it's great fun. And we love, mm-hmm. you know, helping all the butterflies and bees. And, uh, you know, they're they're, uh, I'm frightened to say they're they're a lot less this year than they have been in recent years, and that mm. that worries me a lot. Yeah. Uh, because we do everything we can to try and create a good environment for them, and I'd say their population is down by about a third compared to last year. Maybe oh even no, oh
0: but, my gosh. Uh,
1: Hopefully that's just a momentary trend, but we really need to help and protect our planet and all of our fellow beings.
0: All right. Well, yeah, that's so wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Eben. Sabrina,
1: thank you, and thanks for doing all you do to get this out there.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cultivating Curiosity podcast. If you enjoyed it, can you please do your girl a favor and leave me a review? Also, don't forget to follow this show on your platform of choice so that you are the first to know when a new episode is released. Until next time, stay curious.